You're listening to What She Said with Candace Sampson, a podcast for Canadian women about Canadian women. A mansplaining free zone, What She Said is here to empower, educate, and entertain you. Imagine visiting your doctor and being prescribed a pill with a 95% failure rate, and then being told it was your fault when it didn't work. That, in a nutshell, is the diet industry, and that is just a small part of the discussion in this podcast. Victoria Wellsby is a world-leading expert on dismantling fat phobia and diet culture, TEDx speaker, and best-selling author. They went from being homeless, abused, with self-esteem that was achingly low, into the courageous fat activist and changemaker they are today. Victoria helps people fall in love with themselves and is dedicated to shifting the way society views fat bodies. In this podcast, we discuss embracing fat bodies, the moralization of food, gendered language, being non-binary, and dealing with online hate. There is something in this interview for everyone. So meet Victoria. They are awesome. Hi, Victoria. Welcome to What She Said. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to chat today. Me too. I, you know, I was watching your TEDx talk last night and without uh, giving away the ending, I have to tell you that my jaw dropped when I saw the ending. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, amazing. Uh, but that kind of courage, I don't think 99% of the people would have that kind of courage. So this has obviously been quite a journey for you. Um, you know, listening to your TEDx talk, uh, from sort of the beginnings of this journey to where you are now. Um, I want to go actually go through that if you don't mind, because I think it's incredible. So could we start maybe at the beginning of that where you first started to talk? Because there was a breakup and I think most people can really relate to that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So in my, in my TEDx talk, I tell the story about the, um, the man that I thought that I was going to marry, uh, uh, the most dreamy, incredible boyfriend that I ever had. And, uh, I thought, oh my God, I'm so lucky that he's dating me because I'm so unattractive and fat and horrible. And, um, but it was a dream come true until the day, uh, I found out that he actually had three other girlfriends. And full-time, full-time girlfriends. Uh, one he owned a house with and, um, it were, and, um, luckily, well, the way that he got away with it is that two of us were long distance partners with him. And, um, I really was obviously devastated, just heartbroken, but it was a, a wonderful turning point. I can say wonderful now at the time. No, uh, but it was a wonderful turning point because I looked at these other people that he was dating and they were, they were smart and kind and funny and, and, and gorgeous. And I thought, oh, well, I presumed he was dating me because he's a kind guy, because he's nice. But the reality was that he was dating me because he too thought that I was beautiful and funny and all these wonderful things that I could see in the other, other people he was dating. And at that point, I realized that there was something wrong with the way that I viewed myself not something wrong with myself. So that wasn't an inherent problem. And putting it all down to the size of my body, that wasn't the problem. 
it was the way that I and society viewed my body. So that was the real turning point for me into being like, um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not dealing with, you know, crappy partners and jobs and different types of situations anymore and accepting it just because of my body size. I'm going to try and accept a little bit uh, more into my life. What struck me about that was that your immediate thought you went to, you know, this is something I've done or some some way I look. And I think that we all kind of do that Um, instead of, you know, obviously this guy was a jerk. I mean, he was dating three people. This was really on him. It had nothing to do with you. You're lovely and gorgeous, like you said. And so, but our immediate sort of reaction is to say, oh, it's, it's me, right? And have all this self doubt and be wrapped up of that instead of actually saying, no, it's, it's actually you. So to get to that point where you sort of had this radical self acceptance, was that therapy? Was that just like a great moment where you had this aha moment and sort of saw everything with clarity? How did you get to that place where you realized, you know, I'm awesome? Yeah. So it was kind of one of those cliche aha moments. Reading, uh, we all got together, me and the other, me and the other girlfriends got together and uh, we compared notes. We literally compared letters that he wrote us. And we were like, oh, my God, this needs to be a movie. Oh. Um, you have a script for this, <laughs> right? Scandalous. Oh, my gosh. He even... Um, would write the same letter to all of us. And this is, this is, you know, day before, before like email. I, I, I mean, I'm laughing, but I mean, I'm just, I'm in shock that he was doing this. That's bold. Yeah. He would, he would write the same letter and just change the name on the top and then be like, Oh, remember that time that you said that funny thing? And, and sometimes you'd be like, Huh? I, I don't remember that. And cause he'd get mixed up between me and someone else. And, um, yeah. And so, seeing seeing or like comparing all of these things and um you know he'd even take out one girlfriend to buy presents for me and say oh my sister helped me pick out this thing for you and um it really was a a this guy is a scumbag and any doubts that i have about my worth needs to be put in the bin but i can logically believe that I'm a worthy person and that I um, have got lots to offer anyone, you know, a partner or any type of relationship I have in the world. I I can't believe it in my bones. And so it took years of therapy uh, so that I could feel it in my bones that it was okay to be who I am. So I, I, I want to talk about that a little bit, that feeling it in your bones, because we all hear it from coaches on everything from, you know, our weight to our, our self-worth, you know, that it's, it's, it's easier said than done, it feels like. So there does need to be this massive shift and getting there is really difficult for people. So what prompted you to start helping others find their way? Oh, because Thinking if you, if you live in a bigger body, I use the word fat because fat is a neutral descriptor of body sizes. If you live in a bigger body, we are, and everyone, anyone who owns a body is bombarded with messages, just relentless, hundreds of messages every day, thousands every week that you need to look a certain way. Being fat is absolutely the worst thing that you can be. Um, being fat equals uh, being unhealthy and unattractive and unlovable and unworthy. And I had never heard an alternative message. I had never heard the message that, hey, 
it's okay to be fat. It doesn't mean that you're like some lazy, greedy loser, which is what I thought. I'm a lazy, greedy loser, even though the evidence doesn't, didn't support that. Um, and so when I discovered the idea that it's okay to be fat, I was like, oh my God, I need to tell everyone. And that's, I just wanted to spread the word of being like, hey, did you know? Did you know? Did, has anyone ever told you that? That it's okay? It's okay. Your body is okay. And so it's just been this, this mission of mine to, to spread the word so that people just get that, even just that basic message that we've been lied to about what we need to be to be a worthy human being. Um, I think that's the, the beginning of revolutions for lots of different people. Let's break that down a bit then. What are what are sort of some of the myths that um, we as a society feed people who who are heavier, you know, um, who, as you would say, would be fat? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there are there's so many myths and 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 thank baby Jesus, society is changing. We're understanding weight science a lot better. Um, you can't look at someone's body size and understand their health status. You can't look at a fat person and say, okay, I know they're fat. Therefore, they definitely have diabetes and, and heart issues, and they're going to die at the age of this and they're this and that. And this is what they eat. We can't know someone's health status from their body size. Health is a really, really complex issue. And actually, uh, individual behaviors only make up around 35% of what makes up someone's individual health status. Um, the reasons why people are fat are literally in the hundreds. We hear a lot of the, a lot of things like calories in, calories out. It's simple. Just eat less, exercise more, and you'll be thin. And that's not the reality. Diets fail for over 95% of people. And, and when I heard that stat, I was like, well, yeah, because they're not doing the diet right. That is when people are doing the diet right and following it religiously because our bodies um, rebel. Bodies, human bodies just come in a variety of different sizes. That's just the fact. We, they always have. There's been fat people. There's been straight sized people. There's been short people. There's been black people. There's been brown people. There's been all diff different types of people forever. And now is no different. And fat bodies don't need to be automatically pathologized and um, told that we are unhealthy and lazy and unproductive and all that sort of stuff, because it's not helpful for anyone. And the diet industry, it's, it's big money. Oh, yeah. Right. There's nobody sitting there saying this is we're doing this because we care. Mm. It's, it's profitable, mm. right? So it's profit over people in every instance, I would think. Oh, it's absolutely bananas. Can you imagine any other industry where the failure rate is so high, then they convince you that it's your fault and that you need to try again. So imagine if you went to a doctor and the doctor, you said, I have this problem. And the doctor said, hey, why not take, the, take this pill? It has a 95 to 98% failure rate. And in fact, chances are it's going to make you worse and it's going to, um, you know, make you feel really bad about yourself and uh, increases your risk for lots of different um, negative health outcomes. But there's a 5 to 5% chance maybe that it might work. And then you go back to the doctor and say, oh, it didn't work. And the doctor says, well, did you really try hard enough to take that pill? Did you, did you swallow it fully? Did you, he's like, listen, I've taken the pill. It doesn't work. And uh, it's making me feel terrible. We would logically be like, 
listen, give me, give me something better. And diet companies uh, just turn around and, and blame individuals when their product is faulty, which is really annoying. Yeah, I think you have it listed on your website. It's $66 billion a year mm, yeah. for the diet industry. Yeah, and I think uh, the most recent stats came out is that it's $74 billion now, which is… Yeah, and I think <laughs> if anything with that kind of money, mm. you do have to start to question motivation mm -hmm. on that. And it's interesting um, because I, I was hearing a lot of things about a, a diet called Noom. Oh. I'm sure you're probably familiar with it. Oh, my God. <laughs> And, and I, well, you know, I'd heard, oh, it's, it's great, great, great for a long time. And then the truth starts to seep out about what it is. And it, as it turns out, it's just massive calorie restriction. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is with, with diets, because people are, are waking up and starting to say, ah, dieting's not great. Um, diet companies have to get really smart and get really, uh, in tune with with their marketing and because we're smart consumers right and so what a great way to market something as we're going to help you with your mind because that's what they talk about they talk about how we're going to look at the reasons why you eat and we're going to look at the psychology behind the way that you uh, your weight and yeah the reality is you log into the app and it asks you how fast do you want to lose weight, a, a turtle or a hare? And then you pick hare and then it says, oh, hey, um, eat 1,200 to 1,500 calories a day. And that's it. <laughs> like, that's, the noom, that's the noom diet. But they've packaged it. Yeah, so it's sort of like they're trying to trick you into thinking they're this new yeah. way of doing things. And it's the same old, same old, right? Same, Calorie restriction. Same old, same old. And and it's probably, it's, it's probably even more disappointing because people get excited thinking, I'm going to fix my obsession with food. I'm going to fix my brain. But what they're fed is a bait and switch, is just another diet. And probably learning to be even more disordered around food. And so it's doing the absolute opposite than what they're, they're looking for. When you talk to people then, when you coach people and, and speak about this, what do you recommend for people who are maybe struggling with um, with eating and, you know, disordered eating, years of dieting. How do you get them to see, you know, that they're not wrong? Um, you know, that they can continue with their life and still enjoy food. Like, how do you start that conversation and where do you guide them? Yeah. So this is a really, a really interesting and important question. And a lot of people, um, feel like they are addicted to food, especially if they've been dieting for a long time. And so they feel like there is this pathology around them, that there is something deeply wrong with their brain, that they can't help themselves. They can't stop thinking about food. It's the first thing they think of when they wake up in the morning. And, you know, they'll say things like, don't leave the cookies around me because I'll eat them all. Or, you know, oh, only a tiny little slice of cake because, you know, I can't help myself. And this is really, really normal. So if, if anyone listening is, is like, yep, that's me. It's really, really normal because we live in, in diet culture. I say it's normal. It's not a normal way of eating. That's not eating with freedom. And the reason why we feel like this is because we have restricted for so many years. And you might say, well, I haven't because, you know, I've, I've eaten food and, it, you know, there's the physical and the mental restriction. And so, um, to overcome this feeling of addiction, is to allow yourself food. It's it's as simple as that. Is 
allowing yourself to eat food. And I say simple, I'm, I, you know, I, it's a kind of very tongue in cheek. It's actually very, very complicated because we have so many messages around. Um, we shouldn't be eating that. Um, but as soon as we start allowing ourselves physically and mentally, we can just start taking those um, those chains away from our minds and it just not be that big of a deal. And that's my relationship with food now. You know, the foods that people think, oh, they're so bad or they're so unhealthy or this food is so good and it's a superfood. And I just view all foods as neutral and, and fun and some are yummy and some make me feel good inside. And it's just not that big a deal. I just don't have to think about it. And that that can be the reality when you allow yourself any food. Do you think that we put too much emphasis on assigning um, good and bad to foods? Mm. We moralize food left, right, and center. It's wonderful to think that we can eat a certain food and it will, uh, you know, make make us healthy and we'll never get sick again if we if we only eat salads for the rest of our lives. It's not the reality. It's nice to think that we can have some control, but it's not the reality. We moralize food so much and it is deeply problematic and harmful. And it just leads to people being stressed around food because really food doesn't have a moral value. It's just food. And the moment that we take away the moralization of food, we can just make it all neutral and we can listen to our bodies when they say, oh, I fancy a salad today or I fancy something else today and it just not be that big of a deal. Yeah, so uh, the less good and bad food um, binary thinking, uh, the more that we can remove that, the better. I think we, we do complicate food a lot on everything from what the government tells us, even with the food pyramid. I mean, if I, I, I'm just thinking about a normal day for me, I would never get enough fruits and, fruits and vegetables to hit my daily target. It yes. just wouldn't happen, yes. you know? And so even starting with that, you know, it's, it is hard and we do have a complicated relationship with it. Um, and especially I think assigning that good, bad thing when it comes to people who struggle financially, mm -hmm. um, that adds a whole new layer into it. Um, so they feel bad that they're maybe haven't made the healthiest choice, but their options are limited because their budget is limited as well, right? Not everybody can afford to go out to, you know, the local salad bar every day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, it, you know, as well, it, it's, it's tied in with all different um, marginalized identities. Uh, those, a lot of times, people who are poorer, uh, like you mentioned, don't have access to those things. And we think about the, the people who do have access to things that we're told are, are, are more healthy, for example, organic food, um, to detoxes and meal plans and all that type of stuff. It's people who have money. And who is it mostly in our society who have the money and power? It's, um, it's white people. And so we have to look at these trends and say, is anything else going on here? Is racism maybe at play here? Is, uh, is this a, a part of me feeling better because I have, um, uh, more money to spend on this stuff. And so I'm able to do it. And I'm, I think that I'm, maybe there's a little bit of moralization. I feel like I'm a better person, maybe because I'm eating these things or maybe not, you know, but, but being critical of these food trends saying, where are they coming from? Who are they helping and who are they hurting? When you look out on the landscape right now, 
do you think that things are getting better in, in regards to how people are discussing this or worse? Oh, it's 100% getting better. But with all progress, it's kind of like a, a push forward and then a, a you know, one, two steps forward, one step back, two step forward, one step back. For example, the Australian government have uh, come out and said that the um, diets not working is grade A evidence. The Australian government has said it's grade A evidence, which is the very best high quality evidence. Grade A evidence, um, for example, is does smoking cause cancer? The answer, yes, that's grade A evidence. Diets don't work to make people thin. That's grade A evidence. The UK government recently came out with um, talking about health at every size, intuitive eating and saying how uh, talking the way that we talk about fat bodies is not helpful. That's a UK uh, parliament. Um, I go in and train people on uh, train companies on weight stigma. That's more and more in demand because people are realizing, oh, actually the way that we view fat bodies is not so great. Um, and so, yes, it's absolutely getting better, but diet culture and fat phobia are so smart example of Noom using different techniques and tactics to research, re, um, repackage diets and weight stigma and weight bias in a pretty in a pretty way. So we just have to be very cognizant that diets aren't going to go away tomorrow. Um, we have to be smart about the way that we view these new trends around eating. Diets obviously then do not work. That's clear uh, we've, as we've discussed. What does work? What does work for what? What, what are we trying to? Well, I mean, in terms of having a healthy relationship with food, is it intuitive eating? I mean, letting go of, 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 of sort of the body associations we have with it. What, what works for people? Is it intuitive eating? Is it eating, uh, less processed? Is it planning ahead? How do people find that healthy relationship with food? Yeah. So intuitive eating has shown to really, really help with having a, um, when we say healthy relationship with food, we have to be very careful with what we mean, because again, health is a social construct. Not everyone can be healthy. And so what I like to say is, a peaceful relationship with food, uh, a relationship better, with food. better. I like that better myself, yeah. actually, when you say, say that, that sounds better than healthy yeah. because healthy is again, assigning that healthy, unhealthy, yeah. good, bad mm -hmm. labels. So I like peaceful. That's much better. Yeah. So, so a peaceful relationship with food is really intuitive eating and unlearning fat phobia. And we all have fat phobic beliefs. It would be pretty much impossible not to grow in, growing up in the society that we live in. Um, and it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. Trying to unlearn all of that, all of those fat phobic beliefs that say, if you eat this, then you'll become unhealthy. If you eat this, then you're going to be fat. And being fat is bad. Being unhealthy is bad, et cetera, et cetera, which is such a sticky topic and a lot of people will have a lot of reactions around that, which is a wonderful indication that there are areas for us to explore around that topic. So you, when you did your TEDx in 2018, I was reading the description and it said, she, you are now they. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you have not only overcome uh, 
one mindset shift, you've also now have another uh, in that you're non-binary. How, how did that journey happen for you? Was it, do you think it was woven together or sort of a separate journey for you? Absolutely woven together. Uh, so, Oh, it was, it's so tied together because, uh, of, because I have a fat body. Um, I've always had a fat body. Um, there was no way, shape or form that I could not, um, 100% adhere to, uh, being feminine, being a woman, embracing that 1000%. I could not, in my mind, be a woman and not be hyper feminine and have long flowing curly locks and high heels and, and, and skirts and dresses and, and makeup and all that sort of stuff. And not saying that those things are inherently feminine, but that's what society says is feminine. And, um, I could not be seen as anything but feminine because I had to compensate for having a fat body. I could be fat maybe as long as I was hyper feminine because cis men would then be like, this is what my brain was saying. Cis men would say, oh, well, she's, you know, she's trying, you know, she's not one of these frumpy fat people. She's trying to look beautiful. And my brain, I did not realize that that was what my brain was saying. And it was only until I uh, started to unlearn fat phobia, I started to question, like, am I wearing makeup because I want to? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes I love wearing makeup. Uh, what about high heels? Actually, I hate high heels. Uh, what about uh, being seen as a woman? Am I a woman? Most people will answer that question and say, yeah, that feels good to me. That feels who, like who I am. When I asked that question to myself, I was, I was like, oh, actually, that doesn't feel good. It makes me feel really uncomfortable that people perceive me as a woman. Um, and why am I m- making this charade so that people perceive me uh, as a woman? Um, and it was because I wanted to be seen as desirable and lovable and it'd be accepted and all that type of stuff, which is, you know, to do with everything that we've been talking about here. And, and so it's been a long journey. It's been a few years of me questioning this of, am I, am I just mad at the gender binary? Am I just, you know, mad that people would say, call me ma'am or say missus or whatever. Um, when I was in the, I was in the UK in, in Ireland recently and I got letters dressed to, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Wellesby. I don't even, I don't have a partner and it would just be so annoying that they would be dressing it to this, this imaginary husband that I didn't have even though I made no indication that I had a husband. And anyway, so I was like, is it just that I'm mad about that? But after um, a couple of years of exploring and therapy, I realized that actually, no, I don't identify with being a woman. I don't identify with being a man. I identify with being something else, something that you can't put words to. And for me, the closest words are non-binary and my pronouns being they, them. And that's been super affirming and also difficult still. The, the desire to want to be seen as, you know, some sexy girl, you know, um, but that's just not me. And yeah, it's it's been a journey for sure. And what was that experience like then when you um, announced to family and friends that you were moving from she to they? Did you get pushback? Was, did you, you know, I, I hate to even ask this, but I mean, I've seen it happen so many times. Did you lose anybody in your life that was important to you? Yeah. So it was 
it was a mixed bag. It was probably 90% positive and people saying, oh my God, this is so amazing. And there have been maybe, you know, maybe 10% of people saying, I don't get this. I'm, I'm too old to learn something new. Uh, this is too complicated. Oh, you know, what, what is all this type of thing? Um, and a lot of, and no, I haven't lost anyone in my life because luckily, because of all the years of therapy, um, I've, I had lost people in my life previously because they weren't on board with, you know, not discriminate against fat people. Um, and so luckily most people in my life are really forward thinking anyway, where it's, it's, it's most difficult is online. Obviously there were a lot of, um, there were not a lot of the, but there were transphobic comments being like, Oh God, here we go again, you know, type of thing. And the biggest thing I found is in my daily life is when I go to restaurants and I talk to servers because I almost every single time have to correct them because they say, Hey ladies, what can we get you today? And I have to say, Oh, I'm not a lady. I'm actually non-binary. Um, and most times people say, Oh, cool. Oh, I know someone who's non-binary or, Oh, thanks for correcting me. But there has been a couple of times where the person said, I don't get that. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to, you know, call you that. And, just, and I was just like, what? What do you mean? It's not that hard. <laughs> you know, just, just don't call me lady, you know. But. And it's it's not that hard. But as I said to you before we started recording, you know, I my, my biggest fear is that I'm going to call refer to you as she. Um, and I don't mind being corrected. Um, certainly like that's, that's great. Um, and, but do you run into that as well too, where, you know, people are kind of tripping over themselves a little bit in the beginning? It's totally normal. How can I not? I, you know, if someone has known me for any more than three seconds, they perceive me as, um, as a woman. Right. And so it's so hard because, uh, gendered language is so embedded in the way we think and the way we talk the way we write, it's just everywhere. It's so hard. And so I just think it's not that big a deal. If someone um, misgenders me, uh, they'll say, oh, Victoria, she, and then hopefully they'll just say, oh, oh, sorry, they. It's when someone says, do you know what, Victoria? I don't care about this whole non-binary thing. I'm just going to call you a woman. I don't, I'm not interested. That's when it's, when it's harmful. It's not when someone... Um, you know, makes a mistake and corrects themselves. It's really nice when someone corrects themselves. It's it's so affirming when someone just calls you Victoria, they are awesome. It's like, oh, you know, it's like someone who's called you the wrong name for years and years and years and they call you the right name and you're like, oh my God, yes, that's my name. So it's like bonus points when someone gets, gets it right first time and um, still, you know, good points for if they correct themselves. It's only when someone is like, screw you, Victoria, I'm going to do what I want and call you what I want. Then it's kind of sad face. I don't like that. You are really out there with your podcast, you're on social media. Have you been, have you dealt with the online hate? Um, because I see it all the time. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Maven of Mayhem. Um, on She's on Twitter, um, but she uh, uh, talks about this a lot. And so, um, and she does put up with a lot of hate. Um, so I'm curious if you've had been subjected to this um, kind of vitriol online. Oh, 
Have I ever? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, so, so much. So, um, a year, two years ago, a year ago, two years ago, I was on a BBC two part documentary, um, called Who You Calling Fats, which was viewed by three plus million people and it's been on the iPlayer since. And so, um, I've been, I've had large exposure and, uh, the UK is a lot more fat phobic than Canada. And so from that, and then before that, anyway, from that, we've had a lot of people who were just like, how dare you say it's okay to be fat? You're encouraging people to die and all sorts of things. So much so that now I, I can't look at my Instagram messages. My, my virtual assistant does it for me because it's so harmful to my mental health. And, you know, you can say, okay, um, you know, these people, they've, they've got, there's something wrong with their life. And they're behaving like this because, you know, they're struggling with something. And I would go in waves of being, um, feeling like that, like, oh, okay, they just need help. And, and then being angry of why is it that they are saying these rude things and then thinking it was funny, like, oh my God, they're so silly. But the, the overall toll of having, you know, even if it's just one message a day saying you should die because you're fat is it's too much. It's too much for me to handle. And I think that I'm pretty resilient. Um, and I think anyone, anyone in that situation would feel the same as me. So yeah, I've had to take steps to protect my mental health because it's, uh, yeah, the trolls, the trolls have got me. Well, I don't know anybody though. I mean, we often say, you know, oh, I have a thick skin or I can, I just, I don't understand that. These mm. things are so harmful and so hurtful. Um, and then there's also the threats to personal safety and whether, you know, this person's just blowing smoke or not, you can't help but have that at the back of your head all the time that maybe, maybe they're not, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's very concerning, I think, for anybody. Uh, when you look out, in the landscape though right now too who are you, who do you look to for inspiration who's inspiring you mm. who's inspiring me right now is um i'm currently taking a course on uh whiteness at work uh and i am feeling really really inspired by the instructors who run that course and the leader is um someone called Desiree hang on let me find their name the leader is someone called Desiree Adaway so Desiree Adaway is a fabulous fat black woman and they are really inspiring me uh someone else that uh, that does a lot of work in the fat uh, space is your fat friend who has a fabulous podcast that lots of people love and so there are a couple of people who are inspiring me at the moment. Okay. If somebody's listening, then how would they, and they want to work with you and they want to feel fabulous in their skin. What does that journey, how does that start with you? Is it, you know, a, is it a course? Is it individual coaching? How do you work with people? Yeah. So there's three different ways to work with me. Uh, first is I have a course called Fierce Fatty Academy. Second, I have one-on-one -on -one coaching. And so if someone wants a more VIP experience and uh, you can do that with me. And third is having me come in and talking to your company about uh, fatness, uh, anti-fat bias at work. So they're the three ways. And you can uh, connect with me by going to my website, which is fiercefatty.com. 
All right. Amazing. Uh, this has been Victoria Wellsby, and they are amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Victoria. So it's much. been a pleasure. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.